This is a Federal News Network podcast. The little germ that's wrecked havoc on public health and the economy has also struck a spear into national security. The episode of the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt showed that. Here with a wider assessment is former Navy officer and Pentagon planner, now Hudson Institute senior fellow, Brian Clark. Brian, good to have you back. Great to be on, Tom. Thank you very much. Let's talk about the greater national security picture. And I guess there's a lot of little effects here and there, but what's your assessment of the overall effect that this pandemic is having on U.S. national security? So I think what we find is uh, that the military is adapted like it normally does. So we've uh, gone from a time when we had to uh, keep forces at sea. The Navy's had to keep aircraft carriers and ships at sea while they uh, waited to come into port or when they could uh, ensure that they had a clean port to come into. Uh, we had the, the issue with the Theodore Roosevelt where they had to pull into Guam so that they could offload the crew and have them uh, recuperate ashore uh, while they cleaned the ship and also ensure that they were all in quarantine. And then we have also had problems with some of the deploying units having to wait in quarantine for 14 days before they could leave. So the military's adapted, though, and they've created you know processes so that they're able to get forces on deployment uh, and have them return while uh, minimizing their op- their chances of getting COVID. Now, what it does mean, though, is when they're on deployment, they're not able to, to engage with you know, local populations or host nations, which really does reduce their ability to do security cooperation. That incident on the Roosevelt, our enemies would have taken notice that a major asset, one of 11 carriers and one of probably, what, six or seven that are actually out there at a given time, is disabled or unable to be out there. That would really get the eyebrows raised, I think, of enemies and allies around the world, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And so what COVID shows is that for a military unit, once you get uh, the pandemic, once you get the infection inside of a military unit, that military unit is largely um, going to be unavailable for some period of time, especially a ship, uh, because you've got to you know, take it to a place where you, could, where you can get the crew into quarantine and manage the, the virus, uh, as opposed to like a flu or some other illness where you can just work through the fact that a portion of the crew will be uh, down for a period of time. Uh, so it, it, it takes the it, it causes the force to degrade in a much less graceful way than, than a normal sickness would. And are there different sectoral challenges, say, between the Navy on the ocean in an enclosed environment and talk about under the sea versus the Air Force where you're mostly on the ground on Earth or the Army? Yeah, so for the Navy, once a, a unit get or once a ship um, gets the infection on board, it's it has to be kind of taken offline, and so you'll lose that entire ship. It doesn't degrade gracefully. Um, but when you do get a ship to sea and you're able to ensure it's virus free, then it's then it's able to remain isolated and it can do its its job. Unlike a ground unit like an Army unit or an Air Force unit that's going to be you know, on the ground overseas, constantly at risk of being um, you know infected by the local population or by other people coming into the unit. Uh, so I think that, that the challenge there for folks that are deploying in the ground units is going to be to put their people into quarantine for 14 days before they leave, and then largely isolate them from the local population while they're on deployment, which really cuts down on what they're able, able to achieve while they're on the, the operation. Yeah, so that is to say they can be deployed, but maybe a little less flexible than they would like to be under normal times. Right, right. And certainly not able to do a lot of the training uh, and the uh, host nation support, you know, the military prides itself on doing. So you're largely left to do just the mission that you do on behalf of the U.S. Uh, military uh, strategy. And when it comes to exercises with other nations' militaries, then I would think that the Navy has the least risk because everyone's on their own ship, whereas right. in ground exercises or 
say, air exercises where planes might be parked next to each other, you know more about this than I do, then the troops might actually, from different nations, come in closer contact. Absolutely. So um, training exercises where you're going to be largely uh, staying on your own unit, like like a naval exercise, can continue. And some of those are starting to to, uh, reemerge, and we're starting to do some more of those again. Uh, But events like uh, red flag, where the Air Force will bring in uh, a lot of uh, Air Force units from other countries to uh, Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada to do a large-scale exercise. Those are really being curtailed because of the you know, inability to really ensure that all the people coming into the country are COVID-free um, or forcing them to quarantine for 14 days, which isn't practical for a lot of these nations' militaries. I was going to say there must be sort of a cultural cost there, too, because maybe at the end of the day, the officers from around the nation might be in the officers' club, but not now. Right, not now. They're not That whole opportunity for engagement and learning more about other countries' uh, militaries and cultures, that's lost right now. We're speaking with Brian Clark, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And just out of curiosity, I wanted to ask you, as a former submarine officer, they must have already very long protocols to prevent infection in such a closed environment with everyone so close together, even though the numbers are smaller than a carrier. But it seems like the infection danger would be an acute part of daily planning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once an infection gets on board a submarine, and I've experienced like the flu and colds coming through submarines, and normally everybody on the submarine gets sick uh, with whatever somebody brought on board for the first week or two after you get uh, underway. Um, But normally that's a relatively mild illness, so everybody can work through it. Um, But with this, uh, the Navy's having to take much greater precautions to ensure that everybody leaves uh, COVID-free. So you got to have everybody in quarantine for two weeks, essentially, before they deploy and do temperature checks and have testing done before you leave to ensure that the crew is is, uh, free of of the virus. And then you isolate them on the submarine and they remain on the submarine, essentially, for the duration of the deployment. So no port calls, no... You know, opportunities to get off the ship and walk around or anything. But I guess you can't get seasick on a submarine, can you? Well, you can if you're if it's surfaced, because uh, they don't ride very well on the surface because they're round, <laughs> as opposed to a ship that's got maybe a little bit better control over its buoyancy versus center of gravity. Yeah, so they, so they ride a lot rougher on the, on the yeah, surface. Sort of like a pair of canoes bolted together, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so getting to the bigger picture, as you mentioned in the beginning, the military did adapt. Any lessons you feel from military treatment of this whole situation that could be learned in the wider world, the wider community? Well, so the one thing that the military learned uh, early on, and this was revealed by the whole uh, debacle with the Roosevelt, was um, early communication from senior leaders down to junior leaders as to what the right protocols should be, right? Don't force your junior leaders to make it up on their own because they don't have the best information regarding either the the treatment options for the virus or the ways to isolate people from the virus or how to um, deal with the need to uh, you know, separate your crew and, and dis- disinfect the ship or disinfect the unit. So senior guidance from senior leaders ended up being extremely important, and it wasn't provided early in this case. So that's why we saw a lot of problems out in the military with individual commanders having to make it up on their own. So t- looking at the civilian case, uh, it's absolutely essential that senior leaders in governments, whether it's the state government or national government, are providing your clear guidance down to the folks on the ground who are supposed to be managing because they don't have the best information necessarily, but they're the people that are most directly involved with uh, the people that are the, the victims of the, of the virus and then the people that need to take action to move, reduce its, its spread. So the military uh, you know, found the chain of command being a really essential component of this 
And that's probably something that could be conveyed over to the civilian side. Sure. So bottom line, then, would you say the military has adapted and therefore national security from a military readiness standpoint, at least the, the ability to get up and go is as it was before the coronavirus? More or less. I mean, you've seen uh, the, you know, the Navy or the, the military in general has ramped up its op tempo um, kind of to show that it's able to persevere in the, in the wake of the virus. And I think a, a lot of that, just, it's, a, it's a big inconvenience for military members, though, because this means now your deployment is essentially extended for you know, a couple of weeks on either end. You know, so returning units also have to now uh, remain uh, at sea or remain in operation until their relief can show up, which means their deployment becomes longer. Um, so for military members, it's an inconvenience. And for families, it's an inconvenience. But certainly, they, they've been able to adapt to it. And by the way, how do you clean out a ship or a submarine with all those nooks and crannies? It's very difficult. <laughs> You've got to, so they're, they're a combination of you know, just you know, elbow grease. And then UV light cleaning is becoming very popular or, or prevalent. And then uh, you know, aerosols. So there's, there's some ways to clean it. But you're right. You're probably not, not going to get to every nook and cranny. And so part of what you're doing also is just trying to make sure the surface is not touched for some period of time and the virus dies. Not your average Super 8 motel room. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Brian Clark is Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Tom. He's also a former Pentagon planner and submarine officer. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and on your device. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash Podcast One to learn more and start your free trial.